0: Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 110, Smile. And welcome to episode 110 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So, after a great conversation about Fox reality shows with Amanda, and then an epic look at the life, death, and return of Donna Troy, I'm back to comics. But this time I'm not going to do anything as involved as dissecting the confusing continuity of everyone's favorite Teen Titan. The work I'm going to be looking at is actually a lot different than the superhero war comics monthly books that I've looked at in the past. It's actually a full graphic novel, and it's a full graphic novel that is geared toward young adult audiences but it is incredibly popular. It's actually one of the best-selling graphic novels of the last decade or so, and that is Smile by Raina Telgemeier. I'm gonna be taking you guys through the book's history, its impact on the graphic novel market, as well as its impact on its readers, but I'm also going to be doing, along with that plot synopsis review, The Things You Expect, getting into why I actually chose to look at this because it's not the type of thing that you would expect me to cover on this show. I tend to stick to things that are things I have been a fan of, things from my youth as in the 80s and the 90s. So again, why a YA graphic novel from the 2010s? Well, you're going to find out. You're going to find out quite a bit. And I'm going to be doing it after this trailer. So listen to this promo and come back for Smile. a steal The quarterbin podcast is part of the relatively geeky podcast network. visit us at relatively geeky podcast. or search relatively geeky or quarterbin podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. When I was younger, just a bad little kid My mama noticed funny things I did Like shooting puppies with a BB gun I'd poison guppies, and when I was done I'd find a pussycat cat in its head That's when my mama said What did she say? She said, my boy, I think someday You'll find a way to make your natural tendencies pay You'll be a dentist, a dentist. You have a talent for causing pain. Hey, hey. Some, Some be a dentist People will pay you to be yeah, inhumane Your temperament's wrong for the priesthood And teaching would suit you still less. <laughs> <us. Some laughs> be a dentist You'll be a success, a success. <laughs> SMILE is written and drawn by Raina Telgemeier and was released in February of 2010. So something I found interesting about the author was that she was born on May 26, 1977 and that's almost a month before me. My birthday is June 23, 1977. Telgemeier is also so well known and popular as a author. her fans know her by her first name, and her graphic novels have sold tremendously since she began drawing adaptations of the Babysitter's Club books back in 2008. At this point in 2020, she has five original graphic novels. There's Smile, which came out in 2010, Sisters in 2012, Drama in 2014, Ghosts in 2016, and Guts in 2019. Smile which was the first of the autobiographical graphic novel trilogy, that it also includes Sisters and Guts, actually started as a webcomic, but then it got picked up by Scholastic, where she turned it into the full-length graphic novel that uh, I'm going to be talking about. It has sold tremendously, with 1.5 million copies in print, and in 2018, which is eight years after it was published, it was still selling nearly 150,000 units. That made it number 8 on the year-end sales list, with Drama and Sisters being number 7 and 9, respectively. Now, I guess I should point out that Telgemeier's publisher is scholastic. Uh, They have an an enormous presence not only in in the graphic novel market, but in the children's and young adult literature market. They, after all, do publish Harry Potter, I believe. And of course, all of us who went to school in the 80s and 90s, and even some people who might be younger still do to a certain extent, remember the Scholastic Book Club flyer, something that has been mentioned more than one time over on Required Reading. Um, I don't know about you, but I lived for that thing in elementary school. And when when I actually got to order something, it was a real treat. So that's the company that puts those together, they put the book fairs together, which are very uh, popular in middle schools, and they publish Smile. So they have a huge presence in both graphic novels and the young adult literature market. And I should also point out, by the way, to those of you who might care about these things from the info for the previous paragraph, that the, the sales I was pointing out was traditional bookstore sales and not necessarily comic book store sales. Uh, Diamond's best-selling graphic novel lists look a lot different, and they tend to include superhero content, content by Marvel, DC, and Image that might be non-superhero as well, and yeah, some other comics publishers. The comparison between the popularity of comic book graphic novels or graphic novels and trade paperbacks in LCSs through Diamond and that market and the Bookstore market, your Barnes and Noble, your Amazon, your independent booksellers—that's like an episode in itself because there is a. In some cases, there's such a big disparity. I give credit for my uh, to my LCS Telegraph Comics in Charlottesville that they do not shy away from the smile and the guts of the of Telgemeyers. They are very much forward on promoting that because they want young readers to come into their stores. So I remember when Guts came out last year they were posting messages about hey we're going to get more in we're going to get more in cuz they didn't want people you know they don't want to lose they don't want to lose business to Barnes and Noble if they don't have to but anyway uh, the point being that i'm making here as i kind of ramble is that it's a it's an episode in itself b it's kind of tough to research. Sales figures aren't always up to date and accurate. Like I said, the sales figures I had were 150,000, roughly it was like 149, seven something in uh, 2018. I, I couldn't really find anything for 2019. And uh, it'd be a good discussion to have with like, I don't know, Professor Allen, for instance, because we've had more, more than one conversation about this, the market and and sales and how things are going and and you know how do you diversify and and how do you look at these figures and stuff and I think Shag's been involved in those as well so we might have to bring him on but anyway looking at the raw numbers bookstore comic store whatever we've got 1.5 million copies sold in 10 years still maintaining at 150,000 copies a year that is outstanding for any book let alone a graphic novel and not only was Smile a hit when it came out The book received positive reviews. Uh, For The New York Times said it was a story to comfort readers traversing the years between childhood and adulthood. Kirkus named it an editor's choice and called it irresistible, funny, and touching with strong writing and emotionally expressive characters. They also listed it as one of the best 2010 nonfiction books for teens. The School Library Journal called it an excellent addition to middle school literature and it was included as one of four great graphic novels for family entertainment in 2010 by the Christian Science Monitor. The book won quite a number of awards. It won the 2010 Boston Globe Horn Book Honor for Fiction, In 2011, the book won the Eisner for Best Publication for Teens. It was one of the Young Adult Library Services Association, or YALSA's, 2011 Top 10 Great Novels for Teens, and the 2011 Association for Library Service to Children's Notable Children's Book for Middle Readers. In 2013, it won the Intermediate Young Readers' Choice Award from Washington, and the 2013 Rebecca Claudell Young Reader's Book Award from Illinois. It also won the 2014 Nevada Young Reader Award. And that's quite a bit of praise. And so the question then presents itself. What is it about Smile? Why does it get so much praise? Well, let's get into that. Let's get into the plot of the book. I'll, I'll give a pretty thorough synopsis as I can get. I've got a review and like I said, I've got a whole thing toward the end of this episode as to why this book, this episode right now. The novel takes place in San Francisco in the late 1980s and early 1990s. It begins in 1989, and it begins with a spring 1989 visit to the dentist, where Raina, wearing her Girl Scout uniform, gets her picture taken and not only has a consult with the orthodontist, but finds out that she's going to need braces to fix her overbite. She's concerned about the braces and wonders why she needs them in the first place, but her mom insists that, well, yeah, you do need them. Unfortunately, her younger sister yells that she's going to be a metal mouth. She heads to her Girl Scout meeting, and some of her friends tell her that having braces isn't so bad, although they do go down the list of all the things Raina won't be able to eat because of her braces. If you've ever had braces, you can picture this. Popcorn, gum, gummy candy corn on the cob I remember having to have my bagels cut up so they were in like wedges because I couldn't rip the bagel off the off the thing on the way home from the Girl Scout meeting however she races her friends to her front door and as she's doing it trips and falls and she lands on her face and winds up knocking out her two front teeth Raina is rushed to her orthodontist's office, and she has emergency dental surgery to help save the teeth, something that seems like a weird dream to her. The next morning, she wakes up with a cast on her teeth that will help them heal and set in place. The next week, she returns to school, and when a teacher asks her to tell the class what happened, she's immediately accosted by her classmates who want to gawk at the cast and badger her about what happened. But another week goes by and the orthodontist removes the cast only to discover that her two front teeth have settled back into her mouth, but they went further up into the gums than the rest of her teeth, so it looks like they're only grown halfway in. Not only that, there's a lot of nerve damage. We overhear the doctor telling her parents that they're doing their best to make sure that Raina doesn't have to wear dentures at age 12. At her next Girl Scout meeting, Raina shows everyone her teeth, and one of her friends makes a comment that the pigtails she's wearing, combined with the tooth problem, make her look like a baby. It's something that makes her feel incredibly self-conscious, and it's the impetus for her asking her mom if she could have her ears pierced for her 12th birthday. The dental work, meanwhile, continues. Raina has root canals done to help repair nerve damage, And then she heads to the orthodontist for the braces, which will include headgear. It begins with impressions and eventually ends with the brackets on her two front teeth, which are incredibly uncomfortable and even painful. But on the bright side, she does get her ears pierced. The school year ends with Reyna wondering why more boys don't like her, and her also having a classmate refer to her as Vampire Girl when she signs her yearbook. The summer goes by, she gets her headgear, and then she heads to seventh grade where she almost immediately gets a crush on a boy named Sammy, who is in her band class and has a crush on her. That October, she and her family experienced the 1989 San Francisco earthquake, which famously took place during the World Series, and destroyed a portion of the Bay Bridge. Everyone is okay and recovers although they find it hard to concentrate on much of anything and get back to normal in the first few days after. Sammy, like I said, likes her. And he tries to ask her out, but she heads off dutifully to her next orthodontist appointment when he does, not realizing that he wanted to ask her out until she's walking into his office. At her next appointment, though, she gets an update on how the tooth project is going, and it's not good. It seems that using braces to pull her two front teeth down isn't working because those teeth are fused to the bone in her jaw. So what they'll have to do is pull out her two front teeth and use braces to drag the others over to close the gap. In the meantime, she'll get a temporary set of false teeth that are fitted to a retainer, and that takes place over her Christmas break. It's a big confidence boost for her, and she returns to school feeling that she can smile normally at people, although at one point her teeth do fall out while she's talking to her friends and it freaks them out a little bit. Still, it seems like things are going much better, and while Sammy still likes her, she seems to have a bigger crush on Sean from the basketball team. She does tell Sammy that she'll be at the Valentine's Day dance, but when she shows up, her stomach feels terrible and she goes home. That terrible feeling in the stomach, by the way, is a symptom of her ongoing struggles with things like anxiety and IBS and, and those things that cause that cause it. And that is the subject of her third autobiographical graphic novel, Guts, which I also am going to recommend. It's It's really, really funny. So the day after the Valentine's Day dance, Sammy gives her a belated Valentine's Day present. It's a big heart of chocolate candies. And after she kind of blows him off, saying, well, you know, I'll open it later, and doesn't it open it right there, he realizes that he has no chance, and he's really hurt, and doesn't speak to her again. Her orthodontist tells Reina that the retainer has been doing its job, and she's ready for the full set of braces. And this upsets her, and eventually we do do move from 7th to 8th grade, where she continues to have her wired-up mouth, but when she returns to school, she notices how much all of her friends have changed and how everyone has become awkward in their own way. Although the boys, you know, they do continue to be immature, so some things stay the same, right? 8th grade continues to be a navigation of things beyond her dental issues friends, boys, hormones. She begins to feel a little distant from her usual group of friends, though, and that comes to a head toward the beginning of ninth grade when the two of them, Nicole and Karen, pants her while she's waiting in a vending machine line. She tells them off, ditches that group, finds respite in her art, and then makes a new group of friends. A few weeks into her sophomore year, the big day arrives. Her teeth have been moved over, A bond has been placed on the two front ones, and now she's going to get her braces off. She's a little freaked out by how weird she thinks they look, but her parents and friends assure her that she looks fine. She narrates that while her life didn't dramatically change after that, she did begin to find what she loved to do and was passionate about and turned most of her attention to that. And the final scene of the book is Raina attending a school dance and smiling for a group photo. Now, this isn't the first time I've covered one of Telgemeier's books. If you head on over to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, the literature podcast that I co-host with, well, with Stella, because that's in the title, we covered drama in episode 21. In that one, I know that we both talked about how we teach students who are right in the core audience for the book's readership. She teaches middle schoolers, I teach high school freshmen, and I know that I've heard a number of my freshmen, as well as my 12-year-old son, say they've read all of her graphic novels. I had managed to grab a copy of the book last summer when my colleagues and I were cleaning out the department book room. It was a lone copy, and I was working on building a classroom library, so it went on my classroom bookshelf. It must have sat up there for a few months before I finally decided to actually read it. I'd read drama by that point. I read it a couple of times, and while I don't think that this is at a ninth grade reading level, so I wouldn't like teach this book, I picked it up because, well, I was curious. Maybe some of the kids might want to read it as well or borrow it. Because, you know, after all, you're looking at a book that has been consistently selling in the hundreds of thousands for the better part of a decade. I really wanted to figure out, like, what is it about this book that people like so much? And I know I'm not the target audience, but I went into reading it with that thought in my head. And I also did try to take a more critical or objective look at it while reading it, because that's a question that does beg to be asked. You know, is this a good story for teens and tweens? Is it a good story overall? I can say that the answers to both questions are a resounding yes. I'll start with art, and I'll get to the story afterward, only because I don't have much to say about the art, and I have more to say about the actual story. Because the art's really great, Telgemeier has a style that is very Charles Schultz, or at least has those influences. And since I have been a longtime fan of Peanuts, that's a huge plus for me. Furthermore, each character, while drawn in, a particular, in that particular style, still has a distinct look, body type, and personality. She also makes the settings seem realistic as possible within the cartooniness of the world. While the dental work isn't gory by any means, we definitely get the sense of how irritating and sometimes excruciating it is. And Reina's awkwardness is on full display in a way that makes you feel for her and also laugh along with her. Telgemeier also does a great job of working with panels of about four to five per page, a layout that, re- that utilizes the format really, really well. Speaking of format, this was published in a five and a half by eight inch size, which is smaller than your average comic book or trade, but I believe is actually very close to like a manga collection. And considering how popular those were in 2010 when this was published, and you know, to a certain extent they still are with teenagers, uh, that's a great just choice on the part of I don't know if it was her choice or scholastics, but really, really smart kind of grouping it in with all the other types of size books that the kids were reading at the time. Now, formatting aside, really great artwork. The artwork that matches the tone of the story, creates the mood. It's light, but it's heavy when it has to be, and is really, really expressive. All that aside, let's talk story and characterization. This is a memoir. But even memoirs need to have the elements of a fictional narrative, because you're still telling a story within the memoir. The accident with Raina's teeth and her repeated dental work serve as an anchor to what is a larger story about surviving middle and early high school, or if you went to one like I did, junior high. She uses the progression of the school year and the progression of her dental visits to mark time, and she also sheds light on how her physical characteristics affect her emotionally and socially. Not only that, I think that this is shown using a fair amount of realism and even nuance, which is something that you don't often get or expect from the middle school survival genre. Reyna has crushes on boys, and she has friends who don't treat her particularly well, but we don't see her coming up with some harebrained scheme to get a guy to like her or going to war with the mean girls. We just see all of this in a more everyday context. No. This is not all particularly cinematic, it's not even dramatic to see her make it through the mundanity of the school year, but honestly, that's the book's strength. This isn't an indulgence in some sort of Revenge of the Nerds fantasy or a pretty-in-pink fairy tale. It's more about an awkward girl finding her place, something that I think all of us, boy or girl, have struggled with at one point or another. Okay, I know that's too general of a statement because I know there are people out there who are the beautiful people, the ones who never had to struggle to fit in, and I know there are people out there who sh- had to struggle in a much harder way than you know what we see in this novel um, for various reasons. But even so, I think that a lot of people can still identify with her. We can identify with being about 12 or 13 and straddling that line between your childhood and burgeoning young adulthood, which we see at the Girl Scout meeting immediately following her accident when her friends point out that along with her missing front teeth, her pigtails make her look like a little kid. We see it in her shyness around Sammy and Sean and the stress that having those crushes causes her. And we definitely see it in her friendships, especially the ones that deteriorate as you move from the, the end of the sixth grade all the way to ninth grade. I was not just rooting for Rena through the entire book. I was genuinely happy for her when I read the scene where her friends pants her and then she finally tells them off. It's done really well, too, as it happens in ninth grade. So by then, we've had more than two full school years and a significant amount of the novel to see these relationships with uh, what are four girls, Karen, Nicole, Emily, and Kayla, develop from when we first see them sitting around a table in a Girl Scout meeting the night that Raina has her accident to that point. And I know I already described the scene a little bit in the synopsis, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth here. Serena is at lunch, and when she opens her backpack and people see the toothpaste she carries along with the rubber bands for her braces, just kind of like, I gotta go into the bathroom after lunch and kind of clean up and reattach these things. Karen makes fun of her for carrying toothpaste because she has to cover up her dog breath. Then... Raina goes and gets some food from a vending machine, or at least she gets in line. And when she's standing in line, uh, you know, at at the outdoor patio of the school here, she's wearing a t-shirt and a skirt with leggings underneath, and Nicole and Karen run up and yank the skirt down. In four panels, we get those few seconds, like, after it happened, where she just kind of looks down, and it's this look of, like, wait, what just happened? And then the shock of realizing what happened and then her yanking up her pants and running away to hide in the bathroom. After that happens, Emily and Kayla, who were not the ones who pulled down her pants, run into the bathroom, and they find her crying in a stall. They say, oh, you know Nicole and Karen were just playing around, right? And Raina replies, that's not the point. They humiliated me, Emily says, but you have to admit it was kind of funny. And so this sets her off. She storms out of the stall, and then she storms out of the bathroom, and then when she sees the other two girls, she says, you want a reaction from me? Fine. Karen, I'm not a dog. Nicole, I'm not a vampire, and I'm not going to let the rest of you disrespect me anymore. I'm done. Goodbye. She leaves. And not only that, she spends the rest of the book not being friends with them. This is where I oddly found myself being really proud of her, because it's something I could never do. Now, I've written this about this in other spaces, and I probably will at some point in the future as well. I spent a lot of time in junior high, high school, and even college, being the person in the group who seemed to be kept around because everyone else needed someone to make fun of. And I certainly heard those lines, we were just joking, why do you have to take everything so seriously, and take a joke lines, more than I could count. And I suppose if I go back to throughout my life from the time I was about 11 or 12 and litigate every single instance where I heard that phrase, there would be definitely times when I brought it on myself. I was awkward. I was klutzy. I tried way too hard to fit in and get people to like me. You know, as if I was trying to make up for the fact that some governing body of social existence had decreed that I would never be cool and I really wanted to be cool. And I know that really doesn't matter in the long run, but I bring it up here because we see Reyna go through something very similar, but she not only tells her friends to shove it, she never comes back to them. She doesn't make up with them. And that's really key because often that's what happens. In fact, what often does happen is the opposite of what she does. The person who is mad eventually makes up with those friends who treated them terribly and they're more or less gaslighted into believing that yes, they overreacted and they can't take a joke. Again, I speak from experience here. But if that were the only thing about this graphic novel about a teenage girl that spoke to me, a 43-year-old guy, I don't think I'd be talking about it on a podcast. I mean, I'd still enjoy it. I would have thought it was a great message for young people, especially for those who are dealing with issues of awkwardness and self-esteem and the anxiety and even depression that can come with them. No, what hit home for me and what kept me coming back to the book and what kept coming back to me is the third panel of page 105. Right in the center of the page Raina's is at the dentist and she gets the new retainer. It's gonna be it's gonna help her. It's got the fake teeth on it. It's gonna stabilize her teeth. And what it looks like is it looks like your classic retainer, but instead of a wire attached to a plastic plate, you know what I'm talking about. There are two false teeth on the front of that wire. I looked at that. I had to look twice because that's exactly what I had when I was 13. My history with dentists was already pretty extensive by the time I was 13 years old. I did the typical cleanings and checkups when I was a kid, but when I was in the third grade, my regular dentist told my parents that I had a couple of problems. One, I had an overbite, and that meant that I was going to have to get braces. And two, my baby teeth weren't falling out on schedule. Now, I can tell you that the latter of those that's actually not a big deal nowadays. My kid had a similar problem. They took forever to fall out. He actually lost his last baby tooth like a year or so ago. But his dentist was fine with letting it all happen. He just yeah, we'll just let him fall out. It's okay. But you see my kid didn't grow up in the 80s when they didn't do that. No. I grew up in the 80s, my baby teeth wouldn't fall out. So I was sent to an oral surgeon for the extraction of 12 teeth over the course of five years. Yeah, 12. Eight baby teeth and my wisdom teeth. Not only that, I was completely conscious through all of it. So there was no putting me completely under. There was no laughing gas or anything like that. People in my generation didn't do the whole video of, you know, the person like in the backseat of the car, like tripping out because they're on the nitrous still. And they're like, what, yo, which by the way is really freaking cruel. And I hate those videos because it's just a way to ridicule somebody publicly for the fact that I don't know. They had oral surgery. Like it's not funny. Stop doing it to your friends. Stop doing it to your kids. Okay. Off my soapbox. So anyway, no laughing gas, no anesthesia. What did my doctor do? My doctor shoved the needle up into my gums, numbed me up, and then took a pair of pliers and yanked my teeth out of my mouth. The local anesthetic meant it wasn't completely medieval, but I have to tell you it was damn close. There's nothing like the sound of the crunch of pliers around your tooth, and the feeling of your entire head being pulled forward as that tooth is taken from you, followed by the sight of the bloody gauze that they keep replacing because you're bleeding into your mouth from where they pulled the tooth, and all of that when you're eight. But hey, at least they gave me codeine after everything was over, and I was allowed to eat carnation instant breakfast for three days or so before I could finally eat solid food again. So there's that. And all of that, and adenoid removal surgery, by the way, and that was supposed to include my tonsils, but my orthodontist and my pediatrician got into this whole fight about it. So I actually still have my tonsils. My pediatrician, by the way, as an aside, he wound up in this like nasty divorce or some so- sort um he literally fled the country with his daughter at least this is what I pieced together over the years overhearing my parents but I remember that like his office staff called up all the patients and said we're releasing we're only releasing records on like this day at this time and I stood in line with my dad to get them and the line of patients to get this the records everybody's records from this guy's office went out of the office, out of the building, and down the block of the building that day. Like, we were all lined up for Phantom Menace tickets or something. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. But again, people got away with all sorts of crap in the 80s that I'm, I'm not surprised that that's what happened. Anyway, back on topic. I had 12 teeth pulled. My adenoids were taken out, not my tonsils. And I ended up getting sets of braces on both my top and my bottom teeth. All in elementary school so when I head off to junior high school in the fall of 1989 I'm done with dental work until June 25th 1990 so this is two days after my 13th birthday I'd been hanging out with my friend Tom for most of the day we'd been swimming because it was summer and that's what you do in summer in the suburbs at the end of the day we head to my grandmother's house both of my parents are at work, and my grandmother lived a few streets over from my house. So we rode our bikes everywhere. And when my dad called my grandma to say that he was home, my sister, Tom, and I got on our bikes and we headed for my house. And I realize this is me giving you a little more detail that you probably need to know about this story, but as far as setting is concerned, uh, it actually is a reason for telling you that we were a few blocks away and that there were two routes to take from my grandmother's house to my house. Tom and I decided to race each other. I would go one way, he would go the other way, we would see who got there quicker. And that meant that I was by myself and I was traveling pretty fast when the bag of wet swim clothes that I was holding in my left hand got caught in the spokes of my bike. To this day, I don't know what happened. Because even 30 years later, I actually have a gap in time here. All I remember was turning the corner from Poplar Street onto Colton Avenue, and then waking up in an exam table in the Sable Urgent Care Clinic screaming in pain. So how that bag got caught in my spokes is a complete mystery to me. It's likely I just slipped out of my hand and fell at just the right angle instead of you know, falling just right onto the ground. But what I do know happened is that I crashed the bike. And instead of falling, I don't know, sideways and wiping out that way, or just going kind of head over heel over the handlebars, my face went into the center of the handlebars. So the part of the handlebar where there's there's a joint that attaches the handlebars to the rest of the frame of the bike. Two of my bottom teeth were chipped, and my two top front teeth were knocked out. One of the teeth simply came out. The other went through my upper lip, and it lit the huge hole underneath my right nostril. My sister found me, and the woman who lived in a nearby house helped her either call my dad or call nine one one, and that's how I got into the urgent care clinic. I was rushed to the hospital, put into quick emergency surgery to patch the hole in my in my lip, and after all the swelling went down. I ended up going back to all my dentists because, well, I'd completely destroyed all all the orthodontia that had been done to me in elementary school. One of my bottom teeth, by the way, was so badly damaged that it was pulled. And that extraction was not as bad as the others, but it does make a baker's dozen of extractions. So there you go. The other tooth that was chipped was bonded. I still actually have the bonding or had the bonding replaced a few years ago because it had deteriorated. But after all that was done, the real work began. So I've described the fun of oral surgery, which was all sorts of yankings and needles. To me, though, that didn't compare to the fun that was getting the dental impressions. I mean, it's actually featured in the, in the book, but it, and it shouldn't be a big deal. You know, you get a mouth guard with plaster just put around your teeth for a minute, and that gives the orthodontist a way to study your teeth and decide what they're going to do for you. My problem is that I have a horrible gag reflex. So just about every time I had impressions done when I was a kid, I threw up all over myself. Novocaine? No no problem. Pain? No problem. Vomit? I can't handle vomit. It was terrible. To the point where like my orthodontist knew I was apt to throw up, so she gave me a bucket to aim for because she knew it was likely going to happen. And there was at least one time where I threw up so badly that I had to have the impressions redone because I, she couldn't use the, the dental impressions. I hated getting these. I don't like them now anyway, because at one point I had to have dental impressions done in my adult, adulthood, but I didn't throw up, so at least I've gotten over the gag reflex. But the tears and vomit that accompanied this step would be worth it. In the long run, because it did allow my orthodontist to figure out what she was going to do. That's where the fake teeth come in. She called it a flipper. It looks exactly like the one, or it looked exactly like the one that Reyna wears in the book, except uh, hers was on a retainer wire, mine was just loose. It was molded to fit in my mouth, and I could use polygrip if I felt I needed it, but that stuff felt really weird, and I would only put it in when I felt like I really needed to keep it in my mouth. Otherwise, I just put the teeth in my mouth. I also used Effredent when I soaked it overnight. While wearing this, I had braces put on to move the other teeth over. The idea was that the flipper would slowly be shaved down as the gap in my mouth got tighter and tighter and tighter, and once they were in position, those teeth that used to be, I think, my canines or my inside whatever, uh, would get veneers so they were the correct size. That's exactly what happened, by the way, but it took about three years to complete. I only wore the flipper with the fake teeth for about a year, but that happened to be the 8th grade, which is objectively the worst year of school for just about anyone. I mean, there's literally a movie called 8th Grade that's about it. And what made things even worse was what had happened to my upper lip. So I'm going to throw a medical term at you here. It's called keloid. This is essentially an overgrown scar. The American Academy of Dermatologists describes a keloid as, quote, a type of raised scar. Unlike other raised scars, keloids grow much larger than the wound that caused the scar. If you have keloin prone skin, anything that can cause a scar may lead to a keloid. This includes a cut, burn, or severe acne. Some people see a keloid after they pierce their ears or get a tattoo. A keloid can also form as a chicken pox scar, sometimes a surgical scar, for instance, like what happened to me, becomes a keloid. A keloid usually takes time to appear after an injury. Months can pass before the scar appears, and a keloid can also form more quickly. Once it begins, it can enlarge slowly for months and years. So, that's what happened to the place under my right nostril where the tooth went through my lip. It seemed to heal okay at first, but then the scar hardened and tightened up into a big red lump that sat there looking like a giant red pimple. And look, I know that chicks dig scars, but I don't think they dig the type of scars that makes you look like a deformed Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So I head to the 8th grade with two fake teeth a huge scar under my nose, and an already low status in the social pecking order. i spend the entire year pining for girls who didn't know I existed, and if they did, they probably thought I was weird, and I struggle with a couple of my classes. I think that might have happened had I not had the scar and the fake teeth, but they just compounded everything. You know, people would ask me if the scar hurt. And okay, that's a legitimate question because it was very red. It looked very angry and very painful. What wasn't legit was telling me that I should just pop it like it was a zit. Or, and I'm serious here, offering to remove it using an ice cube and an X-Acto knife. And then once people beyond just my friend group found out about it and the accident and the te- especially the teeth... I was asked by all sorts of people if I could take my teeth out and show it to them. Now, you are probably asking the question, why did you tell your friends that you had fake teeth? Well, they were my friends. And I was under the impression that you could tell your friends about such things so that maybe that particular trauma wasn't a source of shame and they could be supportive. Again, I do these things to myself. Anyway, I put up with that for a year but right before I started the ninth grade, the teeth were taken off the flipper and they were mounted on brackets and they were just attached to the wire that was on my braces. So I had fake teeth, but they were right in my mouth and they couldn't come out. And there were a few take your teeth out requests at first, but once I explained that they were on the brackets, I couldn't do it, that, those stopped. Over the course of the ninth grade, I had all of the fun that braces come with, including rubber bands. That's something that Raina illustrates and shows us in the in the book and it, they're such a pain they are such a pain of the butt um i you know hooking them up and having them like fly off the bracket and out into like wherever and you're looking for this stupid rubber band that's fallen on the floor such a pain so in the spring of 10th grade and this would be 1993 almost three years after the accident the fake teeth had Shaved and shaved down and taken out of my mouth so much because the other teeth had moved over, and my four top front teeth were fitted with porcelain veneers, and those veneers are actually still on my teeth. I have a gap between my two front teeth because I got a retainer after this and didn't wear it as much as I should have, mainly because, you know, even though I regularly cleaned it. I got told by my parents, by the way, that my breath was terrible, and I just stopped wearing the retainer because I just didn't want to hear it. Anyway, again, things to tell my therapist. The scar, So the teeth got taken care of in 1993. The scar did as well, but it actually took a lot longer to finally close the book on that. It honestly wouldn't be until out I was out of college. We had a hypothesis that puberty was at the root of the keloid, and that ended up proving true but again it took until I was almost done with college to prove it there were two attempts to remove it via what they call laser dermabrasion where you you know they put you out and they whack it off with a laser uh one in the summer of 91 uh the other in December of 91 both of those times this keloid came back and it honestly became this thing (laughs) you know like you two surgeries to try to remove it, it kept coming back. It was like, I don't want to say it was like controlling who I was, but it was so impossible for me to ignore it. And I have no idea if like the kids in school like were always looking at it or whatever. I mean, I got comments about it, but at the same time, it, it's blurry as to whether or not I made more of a big deal out of it than they did. I mean, it, it's been almost 30 years, so that may have been the case. What I do remember clearly was that my parents wouldn't ignore it. You know, even after the surgery that really did fix it, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, my dad would like inspect it all the time. I remember him flipping out one time when my friends and I were screwing around and one of them shot a rubber band at me and it hit me like right in the face. And he was screaming at me about, you know, protecting my face and all these things. Like it made me like really really self-conscious they would like picture day picture day at school because my parents were the people who actually ordered pictures instead of just like letting you put it in the yearbook they would remind me every year to tell the photographer to face me so that my left side was facing the camera as opposed to my right and that way you wouldn't get the scar in the picture as much which is I guess a fine request but at the same time like most of the time they tilted you right they tilted you so that your right side was facing so it kind of looked off in some of the yearbooks where i was facing a different direction than everybody else you know between that can you get that thing popped i can take it off for you let's see how this is looking and every time i looked in the mirror this thing staring angrily at me i again i was self conscious i was already awkward i was already this dork this made it much, much worse. I tried looking through my teenage journals, which I still have, uh, to see whether or not I had written anything like deep about the scar. If, if I really really got into how I was feeling about it, did I pour my soul onto those pages about it? Not really. Um there was a lot and I mean a lot. Of stuff written about girls I was crushing on, but the only mentions of the scar were when I had the work done or that I was sick of seeing it on my face. I did write an entry on August 12th of 1993, and that was a week after I had plastic surgery. Yeah, you heard that. At 16, I had plastic surgery. Can you get more bougie than that, right? Anyway, here is here is what the entry said. On August 5th, I had my scar removed for the third time. I went under the knife, (laughs) getting numbed up first, and then getting the scar hacked off and a piece of skin taken from behind my ear for a skin graft. I was then stitched up and everything. For the next four days, I was wearing a huge bandage over my face for the purpose of helping the graft become part of the skin, I guess. On Tuesday, we saw whether or not it took. It did. But we weren't out of the woods. I did not wear the bandage, but I did have to stick to my diet of liquids and soup, as I had to do when the bandage was on me. Now, today I found out that the skin graft was 100% success. Although I cannot play rough activities, no more softball, I have to veg for the rest of the summer. I am able to once again eat solid food. I'll still have to do some medical crap in the future, but I don't mind. The zit is gone! Now I have to complete my second goal, my learner's permit. That medical crap, by the way, was going to the plastic surgeon's office every few months to get a steroid kit called Kenalog injected into the surgery site to keep the tissue from keloiding. I also had to wear a sheet of silicone over the scar and tape it down with an ACE bandage while I slept. That meant that most mornings um, at least during first period, I would have like this big line across my face because, you know, I I don't sleep sitting very still. So I would be like rolling my head back and forth. And, uh, by like the third day of wearing the same bandage, the bandage would become like, would roll up. So it would just kind of dig and dig a line into my face. It would go away as the day went on. Thankfully, by the time I went off to college, a silicone gel would go on the market. And all I would have to do is just like rub that on my scar every night. And that would I don't know how it worked, but it formed enough of a, of a covering that it would apply the pressure and keep that down and keep it from keloiding. The injections, the silicone gel, in various forms lasted until the spring of my senior year of college. And as much as I don't remember the events of the accident in 1990, I vividly remember the day I had my last appointment with the plastic surgeon. He put me in the exam chair. He took a look at my face, and he was getting ready to see if he had to inject the inside again and he said that's it we beat it i I had to ask him to repeat i was like really like i don't have to he's like no i don't have to see you again so like after five years this is nearly five years after getting the skin graft surgery and five years of treatments to prevent another keloid i was finally okay no more doctor visits i still have a scar under my nose i still have the skin graft scar it's not very noticeable uh it's not very red or pink or anything If you really look at me, you can see it. Um, I see it, obviously. Sometimes I actually forget it's there. Sometimes I go back to um, fidgeting with it where I will rub it. And honestly, I hadn't thought that I was going to be talking about this so much. But with, with it being 30 years since that happened and seeing that image in Smile, which kind of triggered this, all of it resurfaced. And all of it was the way I wasn't expecting. Uh, reading Smile and, to a lesser extent, Sisters and Guts made me feel like I have an odd kinship with Raina Re- Telgemeier. In the very least, I can truly empathize with a lot of what she's writing about and what she went through. And She doesn't owe me anything as a writer. No writer owes me anything. But serendipity kind of brought me here, and I'm really glad it did. Smile is readily available just about anywhere. If you're really interested in reading it, I would go to your local library. They probably have at least one, maybe multiple copies. Or if you want to buy it, see if your LCS has it. They can easily order it for you. You know, support those local businesses. Before I go on to my next episode, I have some feedback. I have some Facebook comments, etc. on various episodes. First, on episode 105. That was the very special episode one. Ranger Gord commented, though not about kids, I also remember the MASH episode where Winchester was taking the stuff, uh, which was amphetamines, and dosed Radar's racing mice. I don't know if uh, Rob Kelly's gotten around to that one yet. Gene Hendricks said, I'm watching a very special episode of Deep Space Nine this morning, and it's right in line with all of the other episodes you covered. It's called Valiant. He provided a a link to it. And there is a comment on episode 108 from Michael Wagner about Amanda and I talking about Fox reality shows, and he says, yay, an Amanda episode, let the sass commence. really do appreciate that. In regard to episode 109, which was last episode, I have to give a shout-out to Michael Bailey, who not only invited me to be a part of the J.L. May crossover, but who had some really nice things to say about the episode itself on Twitter. And if you want to hear more of me and Michael, check out episode 50 of the Comics Reading Journal over on the Relatively Geeky Network. Mike and I talked to Professor Allen about uncollecting and divesting ourselves of our comics collections. It's a great episode overall. He's got a lot of great guests and a lot of great conversations on that episode. It was really, really fun to sit down and talk to both of those guys. Uh, one more piece of feedback. This is actually a blog comment post and blog comment, and it's actually usually I don't put these on. I did a bunch in episode one hundred and one, but I really, really wanted to put this on the uh, episode here. It is a comment on my post from back on December 31st of 2019. This was my look at MTV's Dawn of the Decade Party special. It is from Tracy P. She left this on May 20th of 2020, and she says, Hello there. I was really interested to read this article, and I'm very pleased to be able to boast that I was at the Palladium for the MTV Dawn of the Decade Party in 1989. I was working as an au pair in New Jersey at the time and I was 23 so I'm ancient now. I've watched the video and it was great to see it as I've never seen it before. The party wasn't actually held on New Year's Eve, it was recorded in October or November. We all had to pretend it was New Year's Eve. We even did a fake countdown. Some of the acts mingled with the audience afterward, and my claim to fame is that I sat on the stairs and had quite a chat with Nene Cherry, both being British, we were both quite homesick, and she was missing her young daughter, who was only a baby at the time. For me, Nene and the B-52s were the highlights of the night. Hardly anyone had heard of Lenny Kravitz then. It was a great party. I'll never forget it. So I just wanted to share that comment, because that's really cool to hear about. A uh, little bit of an insight into like how those specials are put together and just the the story about Nanny Cherry. That, that, that's really, really cool. So thank you, Tracy, for, for leaving that comment. And that'll be it for me. Uh, next up is an episode that I promised a few months ago. Stella and I sat down and talked about the entire 30-issue Image comic series Paper Girls. It was a great discussion and you'll be able to hear that in a few weeks. And until then, don't forget to send me feedback and support the show by leaving a review and sharing it on social media. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, Visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com/popcultureaffidavit, and on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. I love you,